Today on the Scottso Podcast, we are in our series on the Gospel of John. John writes his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. If you don't know who I am, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor. So good to have all of you here. And to the stewards who are watching us this morning from Dallas, Texas, want to give a shout out to you. Uh, so good to have you joining us as we're all the way here in Wilmington. And to my daughter who uh, basically dressed me this morning, bought me this for Christmas. I'm wearing it on behalf of my daughter. She said, Dad, you need to dress younger. So... Um, um, you can blame her for this outfit today. And so I, I'm always grateful for her to try to keep me, as she says, fresh. So, uh, so it's good to have all of you here. If you have your Bibles, open to the Gospel of John chapter 4. That's what we're going to be looking today, the Gospel of John chapter 4. Now, we've been going through this series of the Gospel of John that we call Believe, and the whole focus of this series is for us to get fresh eyes and a fresh perspective on the Jesus of the Bible. We don't need the Jesus of culture because the Jesus of culture is not the Jesus of the Bible. And culture has offered us all kinds of Jesuses out there. So what we want to do is go back, look from the eyes of John, the disciple, the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, and he is going to be painting through the course of this book different portraits of who Jesus is. And we began three weeks ago with the place that we have to begin, and he says that Jesus is God and man. If we get this wrong, we get everything else about Jesus in the Bible wrong. He is 100% God, and he is 100% man. In this first lesson, we learned the personhood of Jesus. Deity and humanity wrapped perfectly together in a way that we cannot understand. So he is uh, God and man. We find the person of Jesus. But then we saw the second thing is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Here we find the purpose of Jesus, Jesus didn't come just so that we can have a good life. Jesus didn't come just so things can be comfortable for us. Jesus didn't come so that he can be just a good human example of how we should live our life. Jesus came for the purpose of dying. He came for the purpose of the Lamb of God who became the substitutionary sacrifice for your sins and my sins. He came as an atonement to cover our sins and to give us an opportunity to be right with the Holy God. And so now we see the purpose. So we see the personhood, we see the purpose. From that point on, the rest of the Gospel of John, we find his passion. His passion is to seek and to save that which is lost. And for the rest of the book of the Gospel of John, we find interactions that he has with people. And what we see is his heart for the lost. Last week, we saw him um, encounter a man named Nicodemus, and we saw that he is a patient teacher. He comes to, or Nicodemus comes to him, and we said this is the original Nick at night. Nicodemus comes to him at night, and he begins to ask all kinds of questions, and Jesus gives him a clear picture of what salvation is. It's not about your works. It's not about religion. It's about regeneration. It's about a transformation that has a heart change. You cannot earn yourself or do enough to get to heaven. And Jesus patiently teaches Nicodemus. Now, today in John chapter 4, there's a contrast. 
There is a stark contrast between Nicodemus and this woman that Jesus is about to encounter. And the contrast could not be any greater. And we find in John chapter 3, there's this Jewish, religious, highly moral, highly respected man who comes to Jesus in the cover of darkness. When we come to John chapter 4, we find that there is this Samaritan who is uneducated, who is immoral, who is a woman who comes to Jesus in the middle of the day. In John chapter 3, we find the name of the man, Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, the woman has no name that is mentioned. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus is exposed to the truth that Jesus teaches and he stands back. And at that point, he gives no response. In John chapter 4, the woman hears the message of Jesus and she runs away changed forever. And when we look at John chapter 4, many people will look at this passage and say, this is a beautiful picture of how to share the gospel. And it certainly is. Some people say, well, this is a beautiful passage that teaches us about the truth, about what real worship is. And it is. But it goes much further than that. When you look at John chapter 4, you see that Jesus steps across every single cultural taboo of his day. Jesus is not conformed to the social norms or what the society is telling him what to do. Jesus is always doing the unexpected thing. And he does the unexpected thing with the most unexpected people. And when we look at this whole situation of John chapter 4, what we discover is that Jesus is counterculture. He's countercultural in everything that he does. You read through the rest of the Gospels. He's always counterculture. He touches the leper when that would be considered to defile you. He steps across those taboos and he touches a leper. What does he do? He heals Gentiles which was a, a, an abomination in the eyes of the Jews. He's willing to go to a Gentile's home to heal his servant. Jesus is one who teaches and hangs out with sinners and publicans and goes to eat at their home. And we see that he's always stepping across the cultural taboos of man-made religion and violating what men have set up and creating all kinds of questions and anger. Jesus is one who is countercultural. And what we find in this whole chapter is some ways that Jesus kept stepping about across those taboos that culture sets up and willing to obey his father. Now, here's the point of this message today. Is as we look at how Jesus ministered and how he loved people, it's a great encouragement to remind us of how we too, who are followers of Christ, can love others as well. So join me in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your word. And as we look at John chapter 4 today, open up our hearts and our minds and help us to see things from the Lord Jesus and how deeply he loves us and cares for us. And Father, that we would model that in our own lives as we learn to love and Father, as we learn to embrace people who are not like us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack verses 1 through 42. And you're thinking, now wait a minute, are we getting out before lunch today? We are. 
And I want to show you six ways that Jesus always stepped across these cultural taboos and was willing to do whatever the Father led him to do. Here's the first thing that Jesus always did. Jesus went to an unacceptable place. He takes off in the beginning of this and he goes to an unacceptable place. Verses one through three tells us that now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he's leaving Judea and he's going to go to Galilee. But then in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Jesus goes to Samaria. Samaria was considered an unacceptable place for Jews. No good Jew would go to Samaria. Why? Because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They despised each other. And the Jews particularly despised the Samaritans because they were considered half-breeds. They were Jewish roots, but they had intermarried with the people of the culture and had adopted their ways and considered that their lives were tainted. So no good Jew would ever go to Samaria. And when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, that was an oxymoron to Jews because there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Now, now Jesus goes to Samaria. Now it says this, that he had to go through Samaria. What's interesting here, it wasn't the only route or route to Samaria. There were many other ways to go to Samaria. In fact, most Jews never went through Samaria. They would go all the way around Samaria to get to Galilee. They would take extra hours and efforts to avoid the Samaritan people because they were considered outcast. And yet, what does Jesus do? He had to go to Samaria. Why? Because his father had a divine appointment for him in Samaria. Jesus steps across these cultural taboos and he pays more attention to what the father's heart is than what the culture's heart is. And even though his culture says, no, you don't ever go to a place like Samaria, Jesus understood, no, my father has an appointment for me and I'm going there. So what does he do? He goes to an unacceptable place at an unacceptable time at noon when it is very hot in an unacceptable way when he is weary and worn out. And because the father told him he had to go, he went to Samaria. Now I want you to know something that as I think about that, that, that you and I have divine appointments every day. Every day you and I have an opportunity to go places. Now, now, some of you, the father may be saying, I want you to go to an unacceptable place. And maybe that unacceptable place is to move on the mission field somewhere. Maybe God is speaking to some of you, I want you to go to an unacceptable place and I want you to go to a place and live in this part of the city, which many people would say unacceptable, but I have a divine appointment for you there. Most all of us have to go places every day, don't we? We have to go to work. We have to go to school. We have to go run errands. But I wonder how many times we miss divine appointments that God has for us 
because we're just too busy and we're not looking for them. Do you know every day we have a divine appointment? And sometimes those divine appointments are unacceptable timing, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago, on a Friday afternoon, it was the weather was getting cold. The temperatures were dropping. The next day was supposed to snow. Remember, we had that big blizzard that snowed about a quarter of an inch. And, uh, but it was cold. It was going to be like 18 degrees. One of our guys called me and said, Phil, we got two homeless guys who are hanging out in the breezeway at the church. And I called him. I said, well, are they creating any problem? He says, no, I think they're just trying to get out of the weather. So I said, you know what? I probably need to go check on them. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to get out of my house, but I felt the Spirit of God saying, go check on these guys. So I was thinking I was going to go. My wife said, you shouldn't go by yourself. I said, okay, I'll call a good friend of mine down the street, Danny Jones. And I told Danny, he says, I'll be there in five minutes. And he met me. We went down there, and there were these two guys, homeless guys, and they were just cold. They had no place to stay. And so I walked up to him and I introduced myself to him. This one guy is an older guy. And I talked to the younger guy and I told him who I was. And, and I told him, I said, I'm the, I'm the pastor of this church. He said, well, I used to go to church here. I said, you did. He said, what happened to Pastor Phil? <laughs> I said, I am Pastor Phil. Man, you got old. I killed him. He's buried out in the woods. But we set them up that night in one of our trailers out back. And we got all the blankets. And the next morning, we came over here. We, we wanted to check on them. It was like 18 degrees. We told them, you can't stay here. We got to get you somewhere. So Danny and I took half the Saturday of trying to find a place to put these guys so they wouldn't freeze to death. And so they're in the truck. We're driving to this place to put them in a shelter. And here's the most beautiful part of the whole thing. Danny Jones just begins to tell him his, his testimony. Starts telling him about how he got saved and how he was running from the Lord. And he says, you young men, I want to tell you right now that you need to consider Jesus above all things. And I thought, that was a divine appointment. I don't know what's going to happen with those guys, but God does. And here's the thing. There are a lot of times you're going to look at places, you're going to say, that's unacceptable. I can't go there. I can't go to that place. That's dangerous. And maybe the Spirit of God has a divine appointment for you. And we need to be willing to be able to step out and even go to places that may not even be safe for the cause of the gospel. Jesus was always about stepping beyond those unacceptable places. But while he's sitting at the well, the second thing happens. Jesus speaks with an undesirable person. He is sitting there. He's exhausted as the middle of the day. And John tells us what happens. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, you might read that and say, okay, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. It's the middle of the day. Women do not come in the middle of the day to draw water. It's the hottest time of the day. Women would come early in the morning or they would come late in the afternoon. And when they came, they came in hordes. They came together. Kind of like when y'all go to the bathroom, you know. They, they, they all came together. And as they all come together, that was the social event for the community. The women met together. They talked together. They laughed. They, they, you know, they, they didn't gossip. They just gave prayer requests. You know, we got to pray for her, you know, and all this. And so anyway, they're having all this conversation in this community, 
But she comes in the middle of the day by herself at Jacob's well, which was the furthest from town. Why? Because she was an outcast. She was a woman who was not allowed to be with the other women. She was a woman who did not want to have to deal with the stares and the condemnation and the ridicule and the rejection. She comes at a place where no one is expected to be there, but Jesus is there. Now, here he is sitting at the well with a Samaritan woman. Has to be very awkward. And she must be awkward as well. Like, who is this guy? She knows he's a Jew. And then Jesus does something unthinkable. He says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. They're going to Subway to buy some sandwiches, and he's there by, the, by himself. And here's what happens. He looks at her and says, give me a drink. Now, let me tell you, here's another cultural taboo. Men would never speak to women in public, even their own wives. They would never do that. And a Jewish man would never speak to a Samaritan, particularly a woman who is considered to be immoral. Oh, Jesus knew who she was. He knew where she came from. He knew all about her life. He says, give me a drink. She even knew that this wasn't right because her response is, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. How is it that you would ask? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan and a woman. You would ask me for a drink? And here's what Jesus does. It's unbelievable. And Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let me tell you what Jesus did. He just crossed another line, another taboo. Men would never instruct a woman spiritually unless it was his wife and at home. Men would never instruct a woman spiritually. In fact, the rabbis say it is a waste of time to even speak spiritual issues to women. That was the culture. And yet Jesus invites her into this, this spiritual conversation with him. He invites her, this undesirable person, to listen to what he has to say. And then he begins to instruct her. And then she says this, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. You're gonna offer me living water? And, and you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where did you get the living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I'm wondering what Jesus is thinking at this point. Are you greater than Jacob? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. Jacob gave us the well. And Jesus is like, so I made the water. As his sons did for his livestock. And then Jesus tells her, he, answered, he gets her into this conversation. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen to what he's saying. He is inviting her into this deep spiritual conversation. 
He's saying all the things of this world are not going to satisfy you. This water right here, you'll be thirsty again. But the water that I want to give you is the water of eternal life. I want to give you salvation. I want to give you forgiveness. I want to give you the satisfaction of what a changed life will happen. And you will always be satisfied for eternity. And out of you will flow the very salvation that you were going to experience from me. He's telling her all this. And he's asking this undesirable woman to consider the deep spiritual things of God. Let me tell you where we go wrong a lot of times. Tell me if this isn't true. A lot of times we look at people in our culture, we size them up, and sometimes we think, no, I'm not going to waste my time sharing Jesus with that person. They won't believe it. Or I'm not going to talk to that homeless guy over there. He probably cares nothing about Jesus. You know what? I'm really not going to talk to that relative of mine. You know, they're crazy and they don't like anything. They're atheistic and they would never accept the things of God. And as a result, a lot of times we shut people out of spiritual conversations because we think they're not worthy. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't think that about you? Aren't you glad that he invited you into these deep spiritual conversations where his spirit was changing your heart? Jesus was always open. Listen, it didn't matter. It didn't matter to Jesus whether you were Jew or Gentile. It didn't matter to Jesus whether you were outstanding or you were the outcast of society. It didn't matter to Jesus whether you were a sinner and your life was in shambles. He invites people in and he steps across the cultural taboos of his day and says, come hear what I have to say. So how does a woman respond? She said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw again. She wanted what Jesus had to offer, but she wanted it for her convenience. She wanted that she didn't have to go through the middle of the day. She didn't have to carry her jar with her. She didn't have to draw the water and carry it all back out. She wanted a savior who was a functional savior. Somebody that's just going to make my life better. And you know what? The people who followed Jesus were no different. They were constantly following him because of what they could get out of him. This past week, I heard a pastor on, um, I was watching on, on um, a, a church online. I was listening to what this guy had to say. Somebody had talked about him. And I said, well, let me go hear him. And what he said at this point was something that is so erroneous that many of our churches are even buying into this. Here's what he said. He said, Americans are no longer interested in Jesus as a savior. Therefore, they would consider him as a healer. And because they're not interested in him as a savior and they want more of a healer, what we must do as a church is show them how Jesus can be the healer of their life because what they really want to see is how Jesus can change my life tangibly right now, today. How can Jesus make my life better? How can he make my marriage better? How can he make my children better? How can he make my future better? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because if we offer people the Jesus that can just simply provide their needs, we are teaching them to have a cultural Jesus and a, a functional Jesus who can only meet their needs. And he begins to serve them rather than they serve him. And we're living in a culture where that is constant. 
Jesus said to his own disciples in John chapter 6, he says, you follow me because your bellies are full. And the same people that he did miracles with were lining the road to Calvary. And not one of them rallied for him because he could offer them nothing. And so what happens is when we deal with people, we take them into the spiritual truth and help them to understand what their greatest need is. And that is a relationship with Christ. Here's the third thing Jesus does. He crosses another one. He communicates unwanted truth. Unwanted truth. You see, Jesus doesn't just leave her there and just say, hey, you know what? I can give you an easy life. No, he deals with the real heart of the issue. And what is the heart of the issue? Her sin. He communicates unwanted truth, things she really didn't want to hear. Notice how John says it. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Jesus already knew this. He already knew. He was setting her up. Go call your husband. And here's what she says. I have no husband. She was truthful. She had no husband at that time. And Jesus said to her, you're right saying I have no husband. And notice what he says. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I love the way Jesus said it. Now, we don't know why her five marriages ended. Maybe some were widows or widowers. Maybe there was a, but the, the implication here is there's immorality all through her life. And Jesus didn't judge her. He just stated it. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the man that you wake up next to every day is not your husband. And you're living in immoral sin. What was her response? Sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. She knew that he was telling the truth. She didn't say, no, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not true. No, no. She must have looked at him and her jaw must have dropped. Sir, you are a prophet. You know what he did? He did the unthinkable thing. He called out her sin. Now, let me tell you, we're living in a culture today where it is a taboo to point out other people's sin, isn't it? Have you noticed it's always okay for me to confess my sins to you, but it is never right for you to tell me where I'm sinning? We don't like that. And yet the greatest thing we need to hear is the reality of sin. I was on an airplane coming back from Budapest many years ago. I was teaching at a, um, a, a, a pastor's conference there in Budapest. And we were flying back, and I remember I was sitting in, in, in the bulkhead area because I'm so tall and I need the leg room. And, uh, and I'm sitting in the bulkhead, and there's two big guys sitting next to me. They were on a business trip, and they're friends, and they're coming back from Budapest as well. And I love flying on an airplane because you get to find out all kinds of things about people. Well, I'm sitting there, and we kind of introduce ourselves, give each other our names and stuff like this. And the one guy by the window looks at the guy in the middle, and he tells a really dirty joke. And they both just start laughing, and I really didn't laugh at all. I'm just sitting there. And then I love what happens next. He turned to me and said, so what do you do? <laughs> I love that. So what do you do? And I just looked at him and I said, I'm a pastor. And he went, oh. It just got quiet. <laughs> Neither one of them would even talk to each other. And we're flying along, and finally he got enough nerve, and he said this. So you're a pastor, yep. Where do you pastor? North Carolina. 
How's business? I guess a businessman, that's what you ask. How's business? And I looked at him, I said, great. There are no shortages of sinners. <laughs> he looked at me, I said, even on this plane. <laughs> that's what I said. He got quiet again. A couple minutes later, he looked at me and said, you know, I really don't like what you said. I said, what? You implied that I'm a sinner. I said, well, are you not? He says, no, I'm not. I said, well, I'm so glad to finally meet you because there's only been one other person like you, and that's Jesus. He said, well, there's that guy. I said, well, tell me, what is the standard that you use to determine that you don't sin? He said, the Ten Commandments. I said, really? I said, do you mind if we take a test right now and see how you're doing? He said, no, go ahead. I said, have you ever lied? Yeah. I said, what's that make you? A liar. Have you ever stolen? Yeah. What's that make you? A lying thief. I walked right through every one of them. And the guy at the end of that came to the confession. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really good, am I? I said, well, none of us are. And for the rest of the flight, here's what we got to do is just talk about all of those things. I never called him a thing. He admitted it himself. And what we did was through the rest of that time is just be able to answer questions about this and that. Here's the thing in our culture. Our culture says no, particularly we're a moralistic culture, a relative moralistic culture, and that culture is saying, no, you don't talk about sin. But let me tell you, the greatest need is before a person can see that they need a Savior, they need to know that they're a sinner. Now, I'm not saying you go out there and the first line is you're going to hell because of your sin. But I've got great news. They won't listen to you. But if you engage with them, and you ask them, and you tell them the truth about sin, that will open more conversations for them to see the need of a Savior. Number four, let me show you what else Jesus did. I love this one. He avoided unrelated controversies. When people are confronted about their sin, you want, you want to know the first thing they want to do? They want to deflect. They want to deflect. Oh, no, no, no. And that's exactly what she does. He points out her sin. Notice what she does. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You can almost hear her attitude. She's not denying her sin, but she's trying to deflect. And she's trying to say, get involved in this controversial thing. You see, the Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. They thought that was the place to worship. The Jews worshiped in Jerusalem. They thought that's where they should. And there were centuries old debates over where they should worship. And a good Jew would involve in that controversy and dig into it and argue until they think they've won. But Jesus didn't do that. Notice what he does. He says, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, Jesus isn't being arrogant. Here's why he says that. The Samaritans only held the first five books of the Old Testament. They would not go past um, the Pentateuch. And they rejected all the rest of, of the canon of Old Testament Scripture. The Jews held the whole canon of Old Testament Scripture. Therefore, they had the full revelation that God was giving. When Jesus says, you worship what you don't know, he's saying you worship only according to partial truth. The Jews are worshiping according to the full truth. They are right 
to worship in Jerusalem. But there is coming a day when you when either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Why? Jesus knows everything. In AD 70, Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans and the temple was destroyed and there was no more worship there. On Mount Gerizim at the same time, thousands of Samaritans were slaughtered on that mountain and they no longer worshiped there. But Jesus goes to the heart of the issue. But the hour is coming, it is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying both groups are wrong. It's not where you worship. Both groups are wrong. It's not the way you worship. Because both groups were worshiping from an external they were worshiping through rituals. They were worshiping through external means. Everything was outside. Nothing was internal. And they were missing the heart of the Father because their entire worship was just nothing but a show. And Jesus is saying they're both wrong. But there's going to come a day when people's spirits will be changed and they will worship in truth the full revelation of God's word and they will worship from a spirit that has been transformed. That's deep. I want to tell you, dead people have dead worship. They always do. And we are to worship, not externally. That's always a reminder for us. When we gather in this place and we worship, if we're just simply going through the songs and, and we're simply just going through the practice and, and we consider all of this just the preliminary before we get to the meat of the, then we're missing out on what God wants his body to be involved in that we worship from spirit and in truth. Here's how the woman responds. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he's gonna tell us all things. Yeah, I know that the Messiah is coming. I know he's the Christ. And when he comes, he's gonna straighten up this mess. He's gonna tell us where we really need to worship and how we need to worship. He's gonna fix it all. And I love what Jesus says. I who speak to you, Am he. In the Greek, the word he is not there. I who speak to you am. The I am. I am he. This is the first declaration that Jesus makes of his Messiahship. And who does he make it to? An outcast, immoral woman whose soul is parched. It needs salvation. And Jesus goes right to the heart of it. Here's the thing. Jesus always stepped aside the controversies of his day. He went right to the issue of the heart. And I want to tell you, we're living in a culture today where there's so many controversies, aren't there? We're living in a culture today where there's so many conspiracy theories. Now, I will tell you, I am sick to my stomach of the political hypocrisy and the corruption that we see all around us. I am sick to my stomach of all the lies that we're hearing in our culture that are not true. But I can engage in every one of those controversies. I can engage in every one of those conspiracy theories. And I can argue to the hilt, but miss telling them about Jesus. And we're to avoid all that stuff. And when people want to deflect from their sin... We step aside it and we take them to the real issue. And it is, you need Jesus. Amen. And I need Jesus. Here's the fifth thing that Jesus does. 
Jesus corrected uncomfortable disciples. Now I like this. The disciples show up. They've been in, in, in Sychar. They've been trying to buy some food. They're getting sandwiches because Jesus is hungry, right? And while Jesus is having this conversation, John tells us that they, they come back. They marvel that he was talking with a woman, not in awe, but in shock. He's talking to a woman. What, what did you seek? What are you seeking, Jesus? Why are you talking with, don't you know who she is? You ought not be doing this. And while they're concerned about that, here's what happens. So the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and she said to the people, come see a man. Now they were probably thinking, hey, we've seen enough of your men. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. That's in the imperfect tense, which means this. They kept coming, and they kept coming, and they're coming. And there was a string of Samaritans coming from Sychar, maybe in hundreds, maybe thousands, we don't know. But they were flooding the well of Jacob because this woman left her jar, which is symbolic of her old life, and she clearly is giving the marks of genuine faith and ran into the town. Now get this. This is this undesirable outcast of a woman who runs into the middle of town, changed, telling everybody about Jesus. This prostitute has become a Billy Graham, a Priscilla Shire, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to her community. And what's happening with disciples? Meanwhile, love it. The disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus, look, we got these sandwiches. We got a great deal on them. I know you're hungry. Eat. They're concerned about sandwiches. Jesus is concerned about salvation. He begins to rebuke his disciples. He said, I said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one, has anyone brought him something to eat? Wait a minute, that's our job. And then he says this to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months, then comes the harvest? I love this. Here they're standing, hundreds of Samaritans gathering around. The disciples are probably, don't touch him, don't touch him. Everybody just get away. Don't touch him. Samaritans everywhere. <laughs> Look, lift up your eyes. See the fields that are white unto harvest. These Samaritans are the harvest guys. You become so self-righteous. You become so closed-eyed that you don't even see the brokenness of the needy around you. You're more concerned about hanging out with me. You're more concerned about your fellowship with me. You're more concerned about being, having the unique position of being my disciples that you are constantly moving people away. Oh, don't let the little children bother the master. Oh, don't let the Samaritans come close to him. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, look, the fields are white into the harvest. These Samaritans are coming out. These are the people that I've come to die for. And the disciples in their self-righteousness never saw it. I'm going to tell you, if there's a rebuke to the church today from the Lord Jesus, I believe it would be this. That the people that you deem to be so undesirable, the people that I went to the cross for, 
for the people that you don't want to hang out with because they're unacceptable. Those are the people that I came to give my life for. For the people that you're looking at, oh, they would never engage in a spiritual conversation with me are the ones that I'm sending my Holy Spirit to convict. And it's time for us to be so counterculture that we're like Jesus and that we look that no matter who we encounter, the harvest is ripe. And we need to share the truth. Wow, what a powerful message that Jesus gave to them. And here's the last one. Jesus fellowshiped with unthinkable sinners. I love the way this ends. Jesus fellowships with unthinkable sinners. He was always criticized for this, by the way. And here's what John says. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They believed her. Something happened to this woman. She's changed. She's coming in the middle of this, this city. She's telling us about Jesus. Let's go find this guy and decide for ourselves if he's the Christ. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. What? You went to Samaria for two days? You went and hung out with all these people for two days? Every Jew would have been appalled. Then it says this, and many more believed because of his word. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say many people believe because of his signs and his wonders. It didn't say many people believe because of the miracles. Now, many people didn't believe because he was healing people. Many people believe because he was casting out demons. None of those things are recorded in this passage. Here's what it says. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Not because of his miracles. Not because of all of the signs and wonders. Because we heard him. Our ears are open. Our eyes can see. Our hearts are transformed. He spent time with us. He ate with us. He talked to our children. He talked to our teenagers. He talked to our elderly. He stayed up all night and gave of himself. And in the midst of all of this, they were changed and they confessed that he is the savior of the world. Here's the reminder for me. Listen carefully. Sometimes we think that in order to impact somebody's life with the gospel, there has to be a lot of eye candy. There has to be a lot of lights and flashy things. We've got to have the haze machines. We've got to, you know what? I've got to be able to have the right presentation. I've got to be able to have the right charisma. I've got to have, be able to have the right personality. And all of that is destroyed in this. It is the calmness of just simply a relationship with them that Jesus impacted their lives. And here's what it's saying to me. I don't have to have all the big dynamic things to tell someone about Jesus. It can be one of the most uneventful conversations. One of the most unemotional conversations. It could be one of the most boringly seeming conversations with someone where the Spirit of God will use it to change them forever.
Why? Because I'm willing to go to unacceptable places and to meet with undesirable people and to share the truth about their need for a Savior and to love them and to be with them. We could talk about going overseas and making an impact, but God would rather you and me go next door and invite our neighbor over and just engage in spiritual talk. Or the person who works in the cubicle or the office next to me. Or the student that sits in the chair next to me. Or the person in the marketplace, the waiter or waitress, just simply means to step across those taboos and be willing to do what Jesus did. So let me give you five things in closing. Look for divine appointments this week. Look for divine appointments. They're all around you. Look for opportunities to listen to the heart of the Father and speak to people. Secondly, be willing to speak truth to people you encounter. Learn how to share their need for a Savior. Avoid contemporary controversies. Just step aside them. Go right to the heart of the matter. Guard your heart against self-righteousness. Oh, I could never share with him. And finally, be willing to develop relationships with those who need Jesus. Be countercultural, like Jesus is. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, listen to me carefully. Jesus is before you right now. He's sitting at the well. He knows everything about your life. And he is inviting you to leave your jar and be filled by him. He's inviting you to come and to surrender everything of your life to this one who loves you so well and who knows you better than anyone else. And he's calling you today to a relationship. The question is, will you come? Will you step across the lines of your own heart and follow him with all your heart? I want to lead us in prayer. We're going to stand and sing a song. And then we're going to go into our mission field where God has called us to live on mission. Father, thank you for the truth of what we've heard this morning. Challenge us. Enable us to see very clearly how we are to live and how we are to be counterculture. Father, I know that these things take time. And as we look at the Lord Jesus, we all confess that he is God. And he knows things that we can never know. But Father, as we rely on your Holy Spirit to prompt us and teach us truth and be obedient to him, may we live in a way, Father, that we reflect the very heart of Jesus to those around us. And Father, if there are some here this morning whom the Spirit of God is dealing with their hearts, I pray, Father, that they would yield to Jesus that they would surrender their lives to him and that they, like that woman, would leave never the same because they have trusted him as their Lord and their Savior. Father, may you be honored today in all that we do and all that we say. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.